I was once an iron soldier And I've been where the eagles call I will tell of a shining city And how she came to fall My name is Henry, and I'd like to welcome you to Fortress on a Hill. My co-hosts and I are a group of leftist American veterans who scour the news headlines looking for stories related to the military and veteran communities of the U.S. But you're not going to hear most of the typical military tropes here. Here we take those same stories and we clear out some of the cobwebs and bullshit. We ask hard questions of our leaders and demand an end to the militarism that has permeated our society. We have a military budget of $750 billion, three times more than China, and seven times more than Russia. While here at home, American infrastructure and domestic policy languish, especially in the era of Donald Trump. However, Big Don is only the latest in a long line of presidential warmongers and bastards. Our country has lost enough to regime change and military operations the world over, Operations that, by and large, only take innocent lives, or providing no real protection from threats to our country. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, and the list goes on. It's time for a change. Thank you for being with us. Phil uh, Kraske, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to talk about your book with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Henry. Good to talk to you. Yeah. So I'd like to start by you giving us a, uh, a quick overview of your book, uh, Eleven Nine and the Terrorist Who Loved Bonsai Trees. And uh, maybe if you could read a little excerpt for us, that'd be great. All right. Um, well, the story is, uh, uh, talks about how uh, a young woman goes to work on the first day she walks into her office, which is in Jersey City, New Jersey, across the street, across the river from Manhattan. Um, no sooner does she get through the door than she's attacked, and the, the house uh, converted to office. This place is full of paramilitary types. She manages to escape, and 20 minutes later, uh, some terrorists who have just tried to put a bomb in the Empire State Building pull up to the same building. They run inside. There's a hostage standoff. And that, that's how the book starts. From there it goes uh, sort of between two different stories. One is the, the young woman, Trudy, who is running from the uh, that uh, are trying to catch her. And the other is the story of uh, Paul Clippin, who's uh, a diplomat in the State Department. And, and uh, the hostage standoff in this, uh, in this building, which takes place uh, when the, the uh, terrorists arrive, uh, this ends uh, very badly for everybody. And uh, America is, again, traumatized by a terrorist attack, and it seems that uh, many of the terrorists were Iranians. So now America is beating the war drums against Iran, 
And of course, the young woman knows that this was a false flag attack because it was the the building was full of paramilitaries uh, and not terrorists uh, when she arrived. And uh, Paul Clippin, on the other hand, is trying to uh, stave off this slide into a into a war with Iran. And the funny thing is, I, I wrote this book uh, starting oh, actually seven years ago. Uh, put it down, picked it up, put it down, picked it up. And uh, the same thing is happening today. We have false flag attacks in the Gulf of Oman, and they're pushing America towards war with Iran. So uh, I'm kind of smug about having predicted uh, what was going to happen. And, and well, you shouldn't be. It's, 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 uh, it's easy for anybody who wants to see the pieces fall together. But it's also a lot, a lot easier to just dismiss them and take the, take the established narrative for a run. Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite true. But anyways, uh, so I'll read a, a short, uh, a short from the and uh, the um, um, you can uh, hear a little bit about the hostage standoff. Uh, and how uh, how that uh, came about sounds great so uh let's see here um of further events on charles drew street that morning little need be said all the world knows the story about how the five men entered the empire state building 9:07 a.m on the security video and patiently went through security little halo above their swarthy features. They rode an elevator to the fourth floor, the highest one of the base of the building that directly borders the sidewalk. This floor held an office that had been vacated a month before by a Norwegian shipping container representative. Security alarms had been taken out. There they forced open a temporary door to the space, opened a window on the 34th Street side, dropped a string tied to a weight out the window, and with the help of a Confederate down below, drew in two ropes, each heavier than the last. The second was a rob robust inch-thick in, inch cord that could have clutched a yacht to its dock. They drew up a smallish block and tackle and attached it to, a, to an exposed ceiling beam. With this, they drew up two of three wooden crates from the van, each big enough to hold a household air conditioner. Well, then they go to the, they, they're caught, they flee to the house, and uh, this is the hostage standoff. And from there, as everyone remembers, threats, bullhorns, telephone demands, panicked evacuations of surrounding houses, policemen crouching, reporters purring, tiptoes hurting, photographers squinting, seemingly, reportedly, apparently, allegedly, all the wet nurses of modern journalism rose to the task of covering a live crisis. SWAT teams unpacked lockers, Special teams stretched muscles. Local police chiefs sipped fab coffee. The White House expressed concern. Chin-stroking specialists from every fife and specialdom gathered at each end of the 100 block of Charles Drew Street, where a little carnival of professionalism crackled and hummed, all at the service of the public good and the extinction of public danger. That's great. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing that with us, Phil. Uh -huh. So, 
as someone who has written about fiction about false flags and terrorism in general, I would imagine that your view of September 11th and what happened that day must be a vital one. Can you give us an understanding to, to what your opinion is and how it ultimately influences your writing? Well, I uh, uh, was Im immediately sort of suspicious of the 9-11 official story for different reasons and with time began to look into the alternative theories of what had happened and um, looked at the what the truthers were saying and what the debunkers were saying and essentially uh, came to rest on the side of the truthers uh, who say that the buildings were taken down with demolition explosives and, and uh, have different theories about who was responsible and so on and so forth. Um, I suppose that in a lot of ways, I, um, my view of these things is a lot influenced by the fact that I, in, I majored in international relations in college. And this was at the time in the late 70s and early 80s when there was still a great deal of suspicion of the government and of, uh, of uh, what, uh, how the real decisions were being made. Uh, there was still a great deal of questions of how we were uh, getting it, why we got into Vietnam, why did it go on so long? So I suppose that I come from a generation that is naturally rather suspicious of, of foreign policy and uh, the foreign policy machinery in general. And I guess that uh, in writing this this novel, I am writing about a dramatic situation, uh, which is a terrorist attack. But on the other hand, uh, a sort of a comic situation in which uh, uh, a sort of uh, cabal of deep state types are putting together this plot. And uh, my, my skepticism of uh, of the deep state and the people who make the big decisions is very much uh, reflected in the book. As uh, the title says, 11-9 and the terrorists who love bonsai trees. It's sort of part drama and part comedy. What, um, what kind of research do you do and how long do you spend researching before beginning a book like this? Actually, what I do, Henry, is I write the book, and then I figure out what kind of research I have to do. Sometimes I do the research, and, and I find out that I can't use an element or, or another in the book. Sure. Um, and uh, so I guess that my research um, is uh, sort of just uh, germane to, to the book itself. Uh, in this case, I had to take a very careful look at the Empire State Building. Um, I had to look at some just basic facts about about uh, different uh, titles, different uh, um, officials in the State Department. Uh, Paul Clippin, for example, he's the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and that that uh, that title really exists in the State Department. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of State. And, 
And so, anyways, I guess you've got to you've got to invent a title for every level. So that's what they do. <laughs> uh, and uh, different things. I even had to uh, look into uh, Jersey City. Uh, I had to walk down the streets on Google Earth, look at what type of uh, neighborhoods it has, what type of uh, houses, what kind of uh, um, different. Uh, uh, electrical cabling it has, uh, all kinds of things like that. Um, and so really the point when you when I do the research, it's not to get every detail correct, but it, what, it, it allows me to present what is a feasible story. Uh, um, a lot of writers, especially thriller writers, they want to impress you with all of the research that they've done. And uh, so they put in a lot of extra details that they don't need and uh, sound very authoritative, but really it's just uh, a lot of malarkey. For me, as long as uh, my story is feasible and based on fact, then uh, that's good enough. Sounds, sounds good to me. Now this is, um, if I'm remembering correctly, this is your uh, fourth book, is that right? My fifth. Right. Fifth book, fifth book. My bad. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know how did how did publishing your first book change your your process? Most authors really have a, a big a big changeover following their first book. I'm wondering what what your process was like. Um, well, I wouldn't say it uh, changed a lot. I published my first book and. Uh, uh, then immediately uh, started to work on the second, published that uh, very soon after. And uh, I've always uh, worked with a, a self-publisher, um, especially because it's very difficult for a, for a new novelist to break into the business. All of the literary agents, they're all looking for the next, uh, you know, the next Harry Potter, the next... Uh, Hunger Games, something like that. And somebody who comes along with just a, a good novel really doesn't get very far because, well, he's unknown. Sure. And people don't, you know, it's very much a chicken and egg thing. You you have to sell a lot of books to become known and you have to be known to sell a lot of books. And uh, this is really the only book that uh, I've been able to sort of publicize and, uh, you know, uh, talk about. Um because it has some sort of resonance with uh, current events. Um, my, my third novel, for example, is uh, a romance connected with a thriller. And I think it's a romance that's uh, on a par with, with the Biz of Madison County or uh, Love Story. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to get on your show to talk about a, uh, a romance novel. And so, uh, you know, it's been very hard to... Uh, sell more than a, a few dozen copies of, of any of my my books uh, kind of a pity but that's that's the way it is so having studied false flags and, and and terrorism more extensively how do you think that we aside from from works like yours how do you think we can best educate the public about false flag attacks and what can we do to push back against that? very strongly established narrative? I think it's a very, uh, very difficult thing to do. Um, 
in fact, one of the points that I make in my book is that uh, the, the truthers uh, come along like the sand and shovel brigade pointing out um, inconsistencies, pointing out mistakes, uh, this and that. But they get very little, uh, very little uh, uh, attention from the public. And the same thing with 9-11. You have excellent uh, research that has been done. Uh, you have uh, scientists who, who are lined up saying, yes, the Twin Towers fell as a result of a, demo, a controlled demolition. But in order to get any real push in the public, is a very hard thing. Uh, one of the points that I bring up in my book, again, the, the, there's this one media man who makes the point that the official version of events is like the home team in, in uh, a football game, for example. It automatically has the advantage. Mm. And it only takes an, an enormous effort to convince people and to get the word out uh, in order to change minds. And I think that's a very difficult thing with 9-11, just because Americans in the first place are not terribly political people. They look at politics very much uh, on the surface, and especially with matters of security or national security, foreign policy, they uh, are really not interested at all. It's a pity, but that's the way it is. I would be very surprised if... Uh, if the truthers had any real uh, impact uh, in society. Maybe this, this uh, grand jury that is going to be convened in New York uh, would have some impact. But again, you know, it's, it's a question of will the, will the word get out even if they come to a, a, a decision that uh, you and I would like? Uh, I think it's very difficult. It's... Uh, yeah, it's for it's the hard. same that, that I, for the same reason that I criticize the argument that uh, where people say, oh, 9-11 couldn't be an inside job because somebody would have talked. Well, what happens if they do talk? They go to a reporter. Uh, probably a lot of reporters were quietly contacted after 9-11 by people who, who knew things. And so they listen to the person and they think, well, I've got a Pulitzer Prize for the taking here. And they write up the story and they go to their editor and the editor rubs his neck and says, well, I don't know. I don't know if we can use this. And and uh, the editor says, OK, look, this is so revolutionary that you're going to have to come back to me with three sources, all of them willing to go on the record. And of course, then the whole thing goes down the drain. Yeah. So it's uh, it's very difficult to get. The, uh, the alternative theory of 9-11 into the public to be debated seriously. I, as someone who worked in the intelligence community, I think it's, it's just hard uh, when you're in the community because so much of what you're doing is compartmentalized. So everything is, you're given a certain amount of information and you have to make, you have to do your job with the information that you're given. And you can only push back against that uh, at certain points. <laughs> like if you're in a, uh, 
if you're in working on an operation and or you're doing something that's like long-term information gathering there's certain markers that you have to meet and there's certain people that you know want to know your progress and everything and i think one of the best things i ever read when i worked at um when i worked at nsa was about the whole iraq situation and uh, just everything that happened with the wmds and why everyone messed up and it was because the administration was coming to them and saying you know hey do this find this and and that's exact so then people they were they were getting pressured to present a specific picture and when that happens it's hard to do your job right because instead of being asked what do you have and like let's explore this it was find this find this find this and that doesn't create really good analysis you can't actually do your job well when someone is telling you what to find and when you have certain people that you know maybe they want to climb up the ladder and they want to listen to other people and say oh like maybe what the government or what these people are telling me is right um then they you know they'll get listened to and that really puts a lot everybody else on like a backward footing where they might feel wait a minute like i'm a better analyst than that person and they're getting listened to why is that happening and so then you know people's ego get in the way and uh it just creates like and if nobody's there to check that it can create a really bad environment where people are making decisions based on really shitty intelligence and or they're not listening to the real stuff and they're just going along with what uh with what they want to have happen and that's that really doesn't do anything good for america because you know as you talked about in your book you know there's there's a narrative that's being pushed and everything that's contrary to that narrative gets swept aside yeah yeah and and it gets swept aside in the media as well because yeah. you know another point that i make in the book is that the reporters who are are, are talking about uh, what's going on in you know the the different events they know what they can say and what they can't it's not that there's somebody over them saying do this say this don't say that it's not that at all they know what the newspaper or the networks line is and they follow it because if they yeah. don't well they don't have a job the next day and uh you know the uh, uh the man when there's a little crisis in the book of uh of what the official story is he tells the others in the room don't worry these guys are professionals they know how to handle it and indeed they do <laughs> but you know it's any it's like any uh it's like any institution at the end of the day it's uh, it's uh you know just uh, a hive of of human nature and that's one of the things that i try out in uh, this sort of deep state cabal that uh directs operations it's full of people who are essentially uh you know uh interested in uh their own their own uh, points of view interested in uh one aspect or another and, and you know that's uh it's it's a, a human organization and by nature uh, has defects 
I think that's one of the things I really liked about your book was the fact that you were trying to show, you, you weren't trying to make judgment on any one person or any group. It was, this is what happens when people get together and there's a lot of emotion involved and there's a lot of, there's a lot of things at stake and people make decisions based on what they think is best for them and their group. And that yeah. doesn't always work out for the benefit of everybody. Yeah. Well, that's why in, in the Constitution there are all these checks and balances trying to, to uh, balance the interests of each uh, each branch of government uh, with their with their uh, um, their own interest of, of, of that branch, and it's the best you can do. But again, it's uh, it's not perfect at all in uh, in practice. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone. Anyone who you think might be affected by it. Maybe a, a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. Uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment that the military creates for minorities and inflicts on them around the globe. And anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're very blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I probably can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho. Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, and Matt the Virgin Slayer. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if you'd like to contribute and Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did a really awesome job making our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Make sure you check on the site there for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. No, you, it, you guys talking reminded me of a quote from uh, Three Kings, that uh, anti-war movie with George Clooney and Ice Cube. And he was telling them about the, I think he called it the rule of necessity, as in people do what is most necessary to them at any given moment. And you can really see that in reading your story about that, you know, everyone is attached to something for entirely different reasons how in the world that you find something that is 
logical or rational out of that is is it's just bedlam. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, um, and also, all of these people have their own idea of what's good for the country. Sure, and, absolutely. You know, even the people put together 9-11, you know, presumably they thought they were doing what's best for the country. So, um, it's uh, always a question of, uh, you know, a small number of very powerful people, many with the same view about things, getting together and being able to uh, to make events. That's uh, That's what goes on. So I wanted to ask you, you are um, an American expat now living in, in Spain. And I'm curious to, to hear you share about why, uh, why you left the States. I assume that, you know, some of your views play, played a role, but I'd, I'd like to hear you tell it. Well, it's uh, not that I, I uh, huffed and, and got up and left the country at all. I uh, studied in Spain my third year in college, and uh, then when I, I finished uh, my degree and things, I wanted to uh, uh, see the world. I spent uh, about a year and a half in South America, in uh, most of it in Quito, Ecuador, where actually my fourth novel is set in Quito, Ecuador. Um, and uh, then I uh, came back to Spain, because I liked it here so much, and I just uh, stayed on. I like the lifestyle. I like the work I'm doing. I'm an English teacher, and uh, I simply uh, I simply stayed. Uh, being an expat is, is kind of a strange experience in a sense, because as an American, you know, you guys walk down the street, and, well, you're an American like everybody else. But you're an expat, and... You go abroad, and suddenly you're a representative of the United States, whether you like it or not. And uh, the people that, for example, my students, I, I teach English in uh, Spanish companies. I'm self-employed. I contract directly with uh, companies for classes, uh, executives and staff uh, who need to, uh, to, to know English or to improve their English. And I'm the... You know, uh, the American, the only American they ever get to know well. And they always ask me for explanations about, for example, how in the world did America elect Donald Trump? And so there you are, you know, I haven't lived in America for 30 years and I have to explain why Trump. And it's uh, one of the many ironies of living abroad. Um, but anyways... Uh, so it's also kind of a responsibility in a sense because uh, I represent uh, the country to, to many people. And uh, uh, so, um, although I have to say that whenever I'm talking, to, uh, you know, I, I speak Spanish fluently now. And uh, but of course, I have an accent. And so I'm talking with people and and they say, say, uh, wh where are you from? And I say, oh, I'm from the United States. But I didn't vote for Trump. <laughs> I, I I have to add that very quick. Just get it right in there, out in the out in the open, right in the beginning. Yeah, right. And then also with uh, 
George W. Bush also, I, I had to say that. Uh, with Obama, not so much. Obama uh, uh, always has, uh, always had a, a really good image. Uh, and so with that, uh, uh, America's image uh, definitely went up uh, a bit. Um, but uh, with, with Trump, <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone down. My goodness. Uh, so... I'm curious about how living in Europe has changed, or if it hasn't changed, your opinion, your your own opinion of the U.S. and U.S. foreign policy. Well, I guess that uh, what what has changed most is uh, my, my view of the states, um, or the, my view of the states as reflected by by other Europeans with. Uh, with Clinton and, and before that, America was respected and it was uh, considered a friend. Uh, many times a little bit uh, heavy-handed heavy friend, but a friend nonetheless. And then with George Bush, it, it, it went down considerably. And people really disliked America, even though they still respected its institutions. With Obama, the same thing is that the... the, the the institutions were respected and America itself was respected again. But now with Trump, the real difference is that America is just not taken seriously as, uh, as uh, a foreign power. If people don't know what to expect of it anymore. They, they see the, the tweets of Trump, uh, which of course are, are translated and uh, put in the newspapers here. And, uh, People just don't know what is going on with the, the, the American presidency. Is this, this, this guy is this guy some sort of clown? Now he calls he calls the president or the, the leader of North Korea rocket man. I mean that's that's childish behavior. And America had its 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 uh, its defects before, but it was never childish. And that's what that's what. Uh, is happening now in in Europe. That's how the image of the United States has changed. It's just not taken seriously anymore. And you can see more and more Europe and European politicians moving away from the United States as a leader. And that's uh, a rift that is going to continue to uh, to widen, um, especially if Trump is reelected. Absolutely. I, we talked about this last episode, but I always think about just, you know, how much how much this administration and what's happening right now is going to affect our ability to move forward. You know, like what because the bar is sunk so low, we like what are we what can we do now to rectify that, you know, in the eyes of our allies and our friends and and everybody in the whole world, you know, and. It's, I talk, I, I have the, I have the same thing. And you know, when I talk to my non-American friends and they're, you know, just like, man, like the America's a laughing stock right now. Like we're laughing at you. And I'm just like, that makes me really upset. But like, I get it. I totally understand why. Yeah. And uh, the thing is that politicians in America uh, are generally rather unqualified in matters of foreign policy. So it would be very difficult for 
uh, a new president to be uh, elected and to come in and really clean house in the State Department and really make a, a, a sea change in our foreign policy. For one thing, because of the deep state and, and uh, the interests of the military security complex, the, that sort of thing, but also just because it takes an enormous amount of understanding of foreign policy, of other countries, of how the world works, and our politicians really do not have that. The last one that had that was probably George Bush, the elder. He knew a lot about politics and his handling of, uh, we were lucky that he was in office during the uh, the fall of the, the Soviet Union. He was, uh, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, I'm sorry. Um, he, he handled that really very, very nicely. Uh, before that, you would have to go back to Nixon and before that, uh, probably to Kennedy. But uh, it's a very rare president that America has who really understands foreign policy and, uh, and how the world works. It's just, it's hard because we're so isolated in America, right? Like our, we're the cultural hegemon. So we put out all the media and stuff. And, and so when other countries, like every country knows about our music, they know about our films, they know about our food because it's everywhere because Hollywood is global, you know, but we don't have that same kind of exposure to other countries. And so when, when we're putting out all the media, it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, like we're the only country that matters. And people don't really get to see another aspect of that. And like, I think the number one thing my non-American friends tell me is I just wish that Americans learned more about other countries, especially countries that they're going to invade. We're going to like, drop bombs on because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we, yeah, we well, know we... nothing i mean when we went into iraq george bush didn't even know the difference between the sunni and the shia and and the kurds yeah. he didn't even know that they existed and a lot of people in the state department like knew that but you know they're just it's it's hard when we have people making decisions that are not fully informed on what their their actions are actually going to do and we just we don't foster a culture in America really of trying to understand where other people are coming from and why they make the decisions that they do. Yeah, that's that's very true, Kagan. That's uh, you know um, Americans live in a, a very sort of island mentality, and uh, but you know I'll tell you something. Um, I think that that aspect of American life. Is, is really getting better. I'll tell you what. Years ago, when I went back to my town in Minnesota to visit my family and stuff, I stopped into the barber and who was in the chair but, but my old math teacher. And uh, <laughs> so we talked a bit, and uh, the barber said to the math teacher, did you know Phil's living in Spain now? And the math teacher said, oh, really? Well, have you, have you gone down the Amazon? And... <laughs> So, uh, but you know, and and when I when I say to people in America, uh, you know, when I said that I lived in Spain, they were a little puzzled if that was in South America or or just where. One one guy asked my wife, "Now, Spain is that Spain, South America, or Spain, Europe?" And, <laughs> and, uh, oh, 
It's it's the, there are two of them, you know. But, but now that doesn't happen so much. And I think that one reason is that American companies especially have more and more contact with other countries. Because yeah. I don't find that, I haven't found that sort of thing for a good, oh, a good 10 years now. That, uh, that uh, sort of, uh, where is Spain? People know where it is. And, and they're much more aware of other countries just because other countries affect their business and... Uh, and uh, internet and, and things like that. So I think that that slowly is getting better. But even there, um, it's uh, a slow change. And Americans, you know, well, like people anywhere, they they are worried about uh, what's near. And that's how far their horizons reach, really. So it's, uh, it's a tough problem. Phil, if there was a, uh, a book that you would recommend people read as far as trying to understand the the story behind 9-11 what would what would you suggest um i would i would suggest uh uh griffin's book uh 9-11 revisited that really Hmm. takes up the major uh the major uh uh issues and takes into account the major arguments of the debunkers and shows of why they're wrong uh, or, or at least answers them. Uh, that book is really quite good, actually. And uh, Griffin writes well. He writes to the point um, and doesn't get into technicalities too much. He's uh, uh, he's really a very a very smart writer. Uh, sounds great. I, I hearing hearing everything that you've shared today has has piqued my curiosity again. So I'm. Looking to see where, where I can best, uh, the best direction to head with that. Um, Phil, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been wonderful talking with you. Will you uh, share with our listeners where they can find your work? Uh, mainly on, uh, on uh, uh, Amazon or any, uh, any online bookshop. Uh, they, uh, they appear on all the online shops. There's... Uh, a Kindle edition, uh, which is pretty cheap, and then there's the paper edition, which costs a little more. Um, that's the that's the best place uh, to look. All righty, and uh, you also you also uh, uh, do post stuff at um, Phil Cra- uh, philipkraski.com, right? Right, philipkraski.com. Uh, there's information about all my books, and I put uh, my latest. Uh, satirical poem. I write satirical poems about uh, uh, politics, international politics, uh, this and that, and uh, publish them on, on my, my own website and on some others, and they're, they're generally very well received. It's uh, a lot of fun. That's what I write when, I, uh, when I'm not working on a novel. I sort of alternate back and forth, so I don't get too stale working on, on the novel. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, uh, Phil, thank you for coming on. I uh, I hope that we'll hear from you, hear from you again uh, sometime soon. Yes, well, thank you, Henry, and thank you, Kagan. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot, Phil. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www. Dot fortressonahill.com. 
iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. And listen we'll see you next time. to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not 